This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we welcome you to another in our series from the book of Isaiah, in our message series, Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. Uh, And once again, we've come to one of what we call the servant songs in Isaiah chapter 49. Sam, let's uh, let's just remind people that are with us on this trek, why do we call them the servant songs? So the servant songs are – there's four of them, and they all happen on the upper side from, from chapter 40 through chapter 66 of Isaiah. And that is when the book of Isaiah turns from being this book of judgments where it's talking about how Israel and Judah have failed, their future going into exile – um, it's, it's a lot of bad news, but it's, you know, God delivering justice because the nations had really become very wicked. And so in chapter 40, God is saying, you're going to go into exile. You're going to have this hard season, but I'm going to call you back. I'm not done with you. And it's not just that he's going to call them back from the exile that they're about to go into um, from the Babylonian empire mm-hmm. rising yeah. up, but he's going to call them back to an everlasting kingdom, and this servant that is being identified throughout the the remainder of the book is the one, the king, who's going to come and serve his people and to to suffer for his people to give them an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things we also talked about is that uh, through the book of Isaiah, there are different People and groups of people that are talked about as being God's servant. In this case, mm-hmm. in the servant songs, there it's a messianic prophecy. It's a reference to mm-hmm. the, to Jesus. But uh, there are times when God's servant is the nation Israel, and one of them was Cyrus, who was the emperor of Persia and the king of Persia, and he was the one that came and freed them from the Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. Although he did it, I think mostly because he wanted to kill the Babylonians, <laughs> and less because he was trying to free the Israelites. It's amazing to me, by the way, that. Um, Anybody survived that era in history? It's like oh my goodness! It, it was constant warfare. You were always yeah, here at comes war with another somebody. major empire. Yeah, yeah. A, another major empire was always on the horizon yeah. to come conquer that whole region. Yeah, um, and and when we talk about the servants, one of the thing you know you just mentioned sometimes it's talking that the servant is is you know the Israel. nation of Israel. Yeah, but in other times Jesus steps in and he becomes the substitute for Israel. He right. is going to carry. All of Israel perfectly, all the covenants that they owe to God, he obeys perfectly. And you see that in verse five of the passage we're going to talk about today. It talks about the, ser- you know, the servant Israel rescuing Israel. Right. And you're like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless God is telling us that there are kind of two train tracks of Israel. Yeah. One is the nation of Israel that has failed and it has not lived up to its expectations and is about to face judgment. And then God says, okay, I'm giving you another Israel that comes in the form of this one person, this one man, and he's going to carry the covenants perfectly and he's going to to take the punishments that Israel deserves. And he takes everything – 
that that the the fallen Israel deserves that's bad, and he gives the people of God, Israel, mm-hmm. all of the things that he earns that are good. And not just that, but this chapter is really saying it's not just for the nation of Israel, it's for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that has been um, confusing to some people when they've read it, because we, we've, we've heard it even talking to the staff at Personal Worship Devotion Time, is how it will shift suddenly from that. It's like mm-hmm. we're talking about Israel, and then suddenly we're not. We're talking about Jesus, who was part of the nation of Israel, but he was the one that did everything perfectly that Israel was failing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that shift is where people sometimes lose the narrative. So. Mm-hmm. Let's jump into Isaiah chapter 49. Um, Look at the first couple of verses here. It reads, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Um, so this is Jehovah talking, God the Father talking. Mm-hmm. And again, he's talking to the coastlands. Now, we talked about this before, but when he's talking to the coastlands, who's he speaking to? So the coastlands are – it's the far off. You know, so if you're in Israel and you're looking out at the Mediterranean Sea, you know, Egypt is a coastland. <laughs> Italy, Turkey, Greece is a coastland. Tarshish is a coastland. And so when you thought of the farthest away lands, they were coastlands. And so this means the distant nations, the farthest people from where we're at, the Lord is coming after. And so when it, when he shifts in, in 49, he's just finished in 48 talking about how God had been faithful to Israel and how God had led them through the desert and delivered them. And now he shifts and he says, listen to me, all you other nations out there, all of you that are that are way off. The Lord has called me from the womb, and then he begins to say, my mission is not just for the people of Israel, though it is. My mission is for you, distant nations. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness, because that's me and you. <laughs> you know, we're, <laughs> we're those Gentiles whose ancestors were in the far-off lands. Yeah. Um, and so the Lord is, is growing his tent. His covenant people now is, is kind of the tent covers the whole world. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting too, not maybe not interesting, but it's amusing to me that uh, the the New King James translation, which we're actually using for this study, <laughs> says from the matrix of my mother, he has made mention <laughs> of my name. And I think it's just because, I mean, the, the word there, the Hebrew word there just means the inner parts. It's really just saying womb yeah. again, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somebody, some translator was, I can't use the word womb twice. So mm-hmm. we got to use a different word. And the, and the King James used the word bowels, but that didn't go. <laughs> so they're like, from the matrix of my mother. And the, every time I've read that, I thought, the matrix? Like Keanu Reeves and the, yeah, right, the right. computer simulation? Neo. Yeah, no. So, no. Uh, and you, you, this, is, this is like the a calling card of Hebrew poetry, is they'll say a line and then they repeat it in just slightly a different way. So like mm-hmm. notice the first two lines. Listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you peoples from afar. So it's saying the same exact thing, mm-hmm. except it's kind of reversing it. It's almost like a mirror image reversed of what it just said. Then it's the Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And so 
He's repeating himself, and that's mm-hmm. one of the things where you know that the genre that you're reading has, especially Hebrew poetry, is where you find those the repetition. Mm-hmm. It's like he's he's beating it into your brain so that you really hear what he has just said. You know, from our hermeneutic standpoint, from the standpoint of people that are studying scripture, when they realize that they're reading poetry, what should they be aware of? In fact, that I'm reading poetry rather than some other type of scripture. Um, well, it tends to be a little bit more figurative, not always, but you, you tend to find more figurative language, you know, where he's using metaphor and things like that. Um, and that's, that's the main one, I would say. So but then when it says his mouth is like a sharp sword, his mouth actually wasn't <laughs> sword shaped. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good example. The next verse, right. you know, out of his, out of his mouth, or he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Well, you're going to see that. <laughs> Do you want to just – let's just go there. Sure. Um, all throughout Scripture, the sword is going to become this really, really important um, metaphor. Mm-hmm. And so when you see Jesus you know, saying here that he has made my mouth like a sharp sword, you're like, well, that's an interesting image. And, the, and the, what does that mean? Well, when you get to the book of Revelation at the very end, when Jesus comes back and it's describing him coming back in glory, guess what? It says that he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And you're like, what's up with this? Well, this has this is metaphoric language. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, if you go to Genesis 3, what is the role of the sword that you find in Genesis 3? It's separating righteousness from wickedness. Mm-hmm. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve basically spit in the face of God. And so what does God do? He stations a cherubim angel with a flaming sword and on and he divided you Adam and Eve that are now defiled and wicked from the holy dwelling place of God in the garden of Eden and you go forward through scripture and you're going to find that the sword is used um oftentimes to to delineate some wicked act so like when when David falls with Bathsheba and the prophet comes to him he says the sword will not depart from your house or when when Solomon is, you know, having to judge between two prostitutes, he says, you know, bring forth the sword um, and the gospels, and that's going to it's going to determine who's righteous and who's unrighteous. One of the most troubling statements that Jesus will make in his entire life that people kind of go, wait, what? Is he'll say, "I did not come into this world to bring peace, but a sword." And people will say, oh, you know, is Jesus a warmonger? Well, that's that's ridiculous. You have to understand what he's saying here. The role of the sword was to, to divide the righteous from the unrighteous, to identify. And so when his words come out of his mouth, it identifies who's righteous and it identifies who's wicked based on who believes the words coming out of his mouth. Mm. They, they really divide. So those of faith are moved over to the righteous camp on one side of the sword and those who reject his word are moved over to the other side. I mean, in Ephesians, when you're talking about the armor of God, one of the pieces is the word of God and that is the sword, right? Mm-hmm. The sword of the spirit. Right. And so the sword's job, one, it's sharp, so it pierces and penetrates. Mm -hmm. It goes straight to the heart, but it identifies which side you're on. Mm -hmm. Are you righteous? Do do you – are you obedient? Do you submit? Do you surrender to the word? Do you put your faith in it and trust in it, or do you reject it? That identifies righteous versus wicked. Mm -hmm. 
A verse that I memorized long ago was Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, and the word of God can even, you know, display something that you otherwise could not see. It can display the, the thoughts and intents of the heart, yep. um, because the Bible will bring it to light. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember having a conversation with someone who asked me, you know, what's what's the difference between a, a theologically liberal seminary and a theologically conservative seminary? And 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 this was my way of, of putting it, like that passage you just read, that the Bible is living and active. The Word of God mm-hmm. is living and active. And, and seminaries that become super academic where they don't really believe that the word is what it says it is, mm-hmm. they treat it like a cadaver that's on the table, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. that it's dead. It's not doing anything. And we're going to pick it apart and we're going to examine the corpse and, you know, we're going to find cool things about the way that it works or the way that it's structured. But somebody who genuinely studies the word of God and believes that it is what it says it is, living and active, the roles get reversed. <laughs> you know, now all of a sudden when I come to the word of God, I realize, no, 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 I'm the cadaver. <laughs> I'm the cadaver on the table and the word is coming to dissect me. It's coming to bring healing to me. It's coming to pierce and penetrate and to do surgery on me to bring me to life. Um, and that is 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 the difference. Like, and Jesus is saying, like, out of my mouth comes this sword. It, it's living and active. It penetrates. It pierces. It, it it shows whether you're righteous or wicked based on which side of it you fall. And it's a it's a really powerful metaphor. What uh, you know? What do you think the rest of this is talking about? Where it says, "In the shadow of his hand, he's hidden me. He made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me." This idea that the servant has been hidden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here again, in this poetry, you find repetition, right? Mm-hmm. And so they help to interpret one another because they're repeating the same idea. Okay. So it's you know, out of my mouth is a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand, he's hidden me. And then again. He's made me a polished shaft, and the Hebrew word for polished there really means sharpened. Mm-hmm. So you imagine somebody polishing, they're rubbing it. Sure. You know, it's sharpening it. So right. he's made me a sharpened shaft, and his quiver, he's hidden me. It's, so it's saying the same thing. And the idea is, I am very sharp. There's nothing that I cannot penetrate. I am, you know, my word gets to the marrow of the bone, right? But the idea of being hidden, I think, is, you know, when Isaiah's talking, he's writing this 700 plus years before Jesus, mm-hmm. and there's going to come a long period of exile. There's going to come centuries of prophetic silence after the prophet Malachi. You know, the prophets go dark essentially for 400 years before Jesus is born. And no doubt the people had to be asking, when is he coming? Where is he? You know, why hasn't God shown himself? And I think there's some essence of this where God is giving the promise that he is coming, but not yet. Yeah. You know, he's, he's hidden. He's in the quiver. God has not fired him off yet, but he's coming. Yeah. Um, he still, he still has not appeared yet. This was like a common theme, mm-hmm. absolutely through, uh, the Jewish people just in general, but we talk about that in a way that makes it sound like, oh, yeah, whenever they weren't thinking about something else, mm-hmm. they were wondering about their own deliverance. Mm-hmm. But no, it, this was like a, a major thing that that shaped lives and, and mm-hmm. directed people and controlled their, their actions. They mm-hmm. were 
they were actively wondering, when is God going to deliver us? You remember, when you get into the nativity stories, there are stories of people who are waiting at the temple and had been waiting there tens, decades of years for the Messiah to show up. So there was this active longing, when is God going to make good on this promise? When we celebrate Advent, you know, which is it, sure. Advent just literally means coming, mm-hmm. you know, it's the weeks that lead up to the celebration of Christmas. It's, it's you know, just a, a, several weeks where we're setting aside to kind of remember the longing that was experienced before Jesus came, but it's also us entering into, hey, we're waiting again. <laughs> and and the more this world begins to fall apart, the more eagerly we're waiting for his return when he's going to come and make all things right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the second coming when Jesus will come again, um, and he's going to come again with that sword coming out of his mouth. It makes me wonder whether uh, we shouldn't be taking a lesson from that and mm-hmm. be more like Israel, be more actively awaiting that second coming of Jesus. I think sometimes we talk about it in this sort of, we don't want it to happen anytime soon, or else we want it to happen instantly. It's one of two. It's like me, Sam. I say it all the time. I'm like, all right, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, yeah. I just, I can't handle the world anymore. Jesus, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's get us out of here. Um, <laughs> And but that's you know that's my sign of feeling frustrated with the world, and I want Jesus to return and put everything to right. And then there's other people I think who are like, "Hey, I just got married. I'd like to be like, I'd have kids and and have my life." And I just think sometimes that that this the return of Jesus is something that is either very. Um, abstract for people or else in some cases like myself it's sort of like it's an expression of my frustration that I can't handle the way the world is anymore rather than this really this sense of expectancy of like mm-hmm. you know I'm really anticipating the coming of the Lord it's like I want to see it I'm eager to see it and yet I know that if he doesn't come that's because he you know it's another day for me to do what he's told me to do mm-hmm. And I, and I think the, <laughs> the eagerness and the longing for his return is going to differ based on where you are around the globe right now. I mean, if you go to a nation that's persecuted, poor, um, where things are really, really desperate, they are longing for the return of Jesus actively, just as Israel was. But you come to a place that's, that's very comfortable, like America. And yeah. we think, you know what? I'd like to live here a little longer. It's yeah. kind of nice. I, yeah. I want this, you know, in other places, they're, they, you know, they're not excited about their future and they want to see redemption. And that was the case for, for Old Testament Israel. I, that's why when John the Baptist, you know, his ministry is to announce the coming of the kingdom. And so when he right. goes out into the middle of the, the, the wilderness over by the Jordan River mm-hmm. and he's out there and he's just shouting out, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When all of Israel hears, oh my goodness, the kingdom of heaven is here, the Messiah is coming, that's what they're interpreting that as. It says that all of Israel, all Judea, everybody starts going out to John like, okay, I want in. Like, where is he? You know, mm-hmm. you, you get a sense that this is a really big deal. Where now, if you have a guy who says, you know, that the, the kingdom is near, he's usually got a sandwich sandwich board <laughs> over top of him in the streets of New York, and and you look at him like he's a kook. But yeah. Jesus himself said that we should always be ready. Mm-hmm. We should always be expectant, even if we have no reason to believe that it's right around the corner. It might be. Yeah. 
you know, I try to place myself in these situations sometimes and imagine what it would have been like. And I just try to imagine the crowd surrounding John waiting for him to say, you know, it's like the, the Messiah is here. It's like it's happening. You know, who, when, where? And then Jesus comes walking up and John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And they look at Jesus like, him? Him? Yeah. <laughs> I thought he'd be wearing armor. You know, <laughs> he will be at some point. You know, yeah. the second time. Yeah, one of the one of the next two servant songs from now. When we get into Isaiah fifty three, mm-hmm. is it fifty three? Anyway, yeah. in Isaiah, in one of the servant songs, it talks about him, and it says that he had no stately, majestic appearance right. where people respected him. And so, when you'd have seen Jesus coming in the first century, if you had a time machine and you went back and you saw him. You, you would. You would have been kind of underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was intentional on God. Jesus took no personal advantage. He didn't come wealthy. He didn't come with great credentials or pedigrees or, you know, looks or anything like that. He came with a word. Yeah. Um, and that was that was the great thing, was the word of God that came, you know, in the flesh. You know, it, it would have been one of the wonderful things about meeting Jesus in the flesh mm-hmm. is that while, you know, you would have met somebody who looked just ordinary like everybody else. I mean, he looked like the 10 people standing around him. Every, when he opened his mouth, you would know that he was different. It's like his it was his words. When mm-hmm. he would start teaching, when he would start speaking, everybody stopped and listened. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he was the E.F. Hutton. You know, it's like you see those commercials. It's like, you, I, yeah. I, don't know if any, I don't know if anybody remembers those. I think I'm dating myself again. I haven't seen one in years and years. But there used I to remember be, my dad talking about them. Yeah. There used to be these commercials where – Somebody would be, you know, in a setting like at dinner or at a – I saw one where it was at a ball game. There's two people sitting together in the stands at a baseball game. And, you know, there's hubbub going around and you hear them calling balls and strikes. You hear the game going on. And one person is talking to the other person and says, you know, I've been thinking about investing in something, something. And I'm not sure if I should do that or not. I don't really want to know. And the other person says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and suddenly silence would fall, and the two of them would start (laughs) looking around, and everybody in the stadium was stopping and turning toward them to hear what E.F. Hutton said. And that was a commercial that they did years ago that was a series of – and yet I believe that it was like like that with Jesus. It's like he would start talking and everybody would say, wait, what? Mm -hmm. And and just be totally focused on what he was saying. Yeah. he spoke to crowds of thousands, mm-hmm. and they stayed so long that they that they were about to starve. He had to feed them. They had been there so long. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, Tim Keller, who who's a really brilliant pastor from used to be a pastor in Manhattan, he says, you know, that we tend to think of Jesus and we do something that he would not have allowed us to do if he mm-hmm. were in front of us. So, and what I mean by that is we we have a culture that looks at Jesus and go, oh, he's nice. Yeah. You know, he's a nice teacher. But really, when Jesus came with the way that you see in the New Testament, people didn't look at Jesus and say, oh, that's nice. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They either bowed down and worshiped him and followed him and gave him their life or they tried to kill him. You know, he was that sword that really – his words divided people into mm-hmm. totally opposite camps. And you – he didn't want you to be as you know, oh, he's nice, kind of a acquaintance. He wanted you to crown him or kill him. Yeah. And his words always evoked that response. You know, we, we kind of tame Jesus now mm-hmm. to where it's like, oh, you know, nice. I say, be kind. You know, and no, <laughs> his teaching provoked – 
a response that didn't allow you to just sit on the fence and be comfortable and treat him, kind of pat him on the head and say, oh, he's a nice addition to my life. Mm-hmm. No. You either say, I'm absolutely opposed to you and everything you're calling me to be in my life, or I surrender my life to you. Yeah. There's, he doesn't allow for any other response. Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, let's look at verse 3 here. Um, he says, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So ah, we're talking there about Israel. And then suddenly in verse 4, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. So Israel is going to be his servant in whom he's glorified. Oops, no, they're not. <laughs> is that what that's saying there? Well, I, I don't know. because I think it might be talking about – you could be right. But the way that I read this is that he's saying, you're my servant, O Israel, in, in whom I'll be glorified. So I picture this as the father saying to the son, you okay. are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then I, the son, said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. And that is like of everything I read in the prophet Isaiah, that verse right there, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain was the was the verse that went, whoa, he's not allowed to say that. Jesus can't say that. He doesn't labor in vain. Mm-hmm. You know, what does the Bible say? You know, the word of God goes out and it never comes back void. It's sure. never in vain. But then it says, yet surely my my just reward is with the Lord. In other words, he says, you know, when I'm doing my things, I'm pouring out my strength and I'm not seeing the fruit, but I'm trusting God with my reward. I'm trusting him to deliver the results. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, the more I started thinking about this coming out of the mouth of Jesus, the more it really ministered to me. Mm. And I started thinking of him, you know. Just desperately loving people. I think of the rich young ruler who comes to him and it says, Jesus loved this guy. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave everything that you're – all these petty things that you're giving your life to and follow me. Come with me. And it said that the rich young ruler turns and goes away sad. And that that would have been like – Jesus is like, no, come with me. Don't Mm -hmm. you see what I'm doing? And in his humanity, Jesus had to have felt at moments a lot. You look at his disciples who just don't seem to get it. You look at him literally weeping over the city of Jerusalem and listen to what he says to them. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you to myself like a hen gathers chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. There's so many times where you see Jesus pouring himself out and people turning away from him. If he were to just say, I've labored in vain, and that would be really difficult to wrestle with. But at the end, he says, my just reward is with my Lord, Mm. and my work is with my God. And the part of when we talk about vanity, when we talk about toil that never gets anywhere, the ultimate enemy of of progress is death. Mm. It makes everything meaningless. We we talked about this when we got went through Ecclesiastes. Sure. And so if you were to tell me, oh, I've got great amounts of purpose, if if the death ultimately – if death ultimately wins over your life, everything in your life is in vain. Mm. It's going to take your house. It's going to take your family. It's going to take your loved ones. It's going to take all your effort. It's going to take your money. It's going gonna, it's gonna to swallow up everything you are, and it's over. It's all in vain. It doesn't go on. So ultimately, death is the great enemy. It makes everything in vain. And so here at the end of this, you have Jesus saying, but my just reward is with my Lord. Well, what is that? God raised him 
from the dead. Mm-hmm. All of his ministry, all of his efforts, now resurrection power surges into the world. And one of the promises that he is allowed to give to us, because there's everybody who's in the sound of my voice knows that feeling like, why bother? Uh, it doesn't seem like anybody listens. Nobody changes, especially in ministry. Like I, <laughs> You say the same things again and again and again, and you don't feel yourself changing. You don't see other people changing. You wonder what, what it's all for. But when you get to the chapter of the Bible – that is the most laser focused on resurrection, which mm-hmm. is your your boy, the Apostle Paul. Sure. In First Corinthians fifteen, the last verse of that, he's been talking about life, and he says, you know, if the resurrection's not true, we are to be pitied above all people. Why? Because everything we live for is in vain. The death death swallows it all. But you notice after he just – he praises, he just – he gets so ecstatic about the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death. He's defeated the grave. Death has no more sting. The grave has no victory. And the last line that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, therefore, in light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that Jesus has conquered death, the ultimate source of vanity and meaningless – Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Mm -hmm. knowing that your labor Mm -hmm. is never in vain in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so think about, like that's, here you have the Lord who's going through his life feeling that same sense of, is this in vain? But then conquering, struggling with that, but ultimately trusting in the Lord, having the resurrection, overthrowing the meaninglessness of the world. And then he gives us the promise that when you work for the Lord, when you're working, doing the work of the Lord, your your labor is never in vain. Mm-hmm. And that is a promise that you take and you store away in your heart and you have to believe with all your might because there are days and moments and seasons where you're like, what is this for? God promises you that because of the resurrection – when you invest your life in him, when you invest your life in others, your labor is never in vain, even when you can't see fruit with your own eyes. That's a great promise. It is. Verse 5, and this is where, as you said, it, it very clearly demonstrates that God is talking to his servant Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 5, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So this servant is there to bring Israel back to him. Now, what is he talking about? He is talking about the people of the bloodline of Israel, of Jacob. Because what you're going to find in the next verse is he says, is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved one of Israel's? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. And so he's he's saying the Gentiles are in addition to – Separate from, okay. Correct, right. to Jacob and Israel. And I, so I think in what he's saying here is, you know, one, they're going to be to come back from exile. But when the Lord comes, he is going to gather the people of God back to himself both inside the the lineage of Israel, the people, the people of Israel, and also the Gentiles to be – his people, mm-hmm. um, you know, and notice he he brings them all. He doesn't say, well, you know, here you have 
these people, and they're a different kind of my salvation. No, he's bringing them all in, and he says, my salvation is going to the ends of the earth. So mm-hmm. it's like God is casting this tent of salvation, and it is now enveloping the whole earth. Right. And, and the people of God are being brought in, Jews, Gentiles, all of them. So in verse 6, which you already read that, but one thing that I wanted to uh, ask about where it says, um, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Obviously poetic language here, but when he says it is too small a thing, he's saying basically that he can do this, that to him this is a small thing. Which is which is pretty wild. Like it's a surprising, <laughs> a surprising statement because – what he's saying is, is it really too small a thing that you should be my servant, that you should atone and make good for all that the tribes of Jacob have ever done, to restore all the preserved ones of Israel's, and by the way, to also shed light to all the Gentile nations? Like what this is, this is a God-sized task. There's no way that any single human being could be like, oh, yeah, I'll resurrect Israel. I will be the light to the Gentiles that covers the entire globe. The answer to this, if you're speaking with any about a, a normal human being, yes, that is it's way too big a thing. But it's saying it is too small a thing that you, Jesus, Son of God, the infinite Son of God, should be my servant to accomplish all those. You have strength and power to redeem the whole world that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's saying that, you know, redeeming the earth didn't take up all of Jesus's power and ability. And it was it was a small thing mm-hmm. compared to what he's capable of, which is kind of mind-blowing mm-hmm. um, when you consider what his power is and capability is. That's the way I read it. Well, the way that this ends where he says, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth, makes me think about that scene from Acts chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas were uh, in front of the multitudes. Um, it says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves, judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And the response of the Gentiles, Acts thirteen forty eight. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's awesome. It yeah. is. And the I mean, word of the looking, Lord spread through all the region. Yeah, that's very yeah, cool. And Christ, through his people, is that light is spreading to the nations still. Yeah. You know, it's it's every nook and cranny and tribe and tongue and, you know, his light. We are now that light. We are the light of the world. That's mm-hmm. what it's getting at. Yeah. So verse 7 reads, uh, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Um, mm-hmm. So when he talks about to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, I mean, it's hard to look at that and not see 
Jesus and his first in you know in his first coming. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jewish people were so locked on this idea of the of the Messiah coming in to be the one that would free them from Roman rule and everything else. And then you read something like this, and you're like, wait, 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 wait. Um, whom man despises, whom the nation abhors. We're not going to abhor this guy. He's going to deliver us. He's going to save us from Rome. He's going to put Israel back to becoming a major power in this area. And yet, this is exactly what happened to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Despised and rejected by men, even those closest to him. Like when Jesus is finally carrying out the the moment of his redemption, think about it. It, it wasn't just his enemies. It wasn't just, you know, the, the pilots and, and the Romans and the, the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees that stood against him. Everyone left him. You know, mm-hmm. he was he was left alone. To win our redemption, you know, so that that deep despisal that you know people hated the fact that he said the gospel was for all people. They hated his calls for humility. He, they hated, you know, that he called out false piety and self righteousness because that's where they found their identity. And I mean, people they hated this guy. And yet, then the turn is you hinted at this. That's the first coming, but the second coming. You know, when he comes in glory, kings will see and arise and princes, they'll prostrate themselves. And that's, you know, the prophecy that you find in the New Testament. Every knee will bow mm-hmm. um, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Like there will be, there will come a day when he comes in glory where they're left with no other option when they see who he is. Mm-hmm. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. What does it mean when, for example, it says to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages? It seems like there's some difficult language there. Basically, their inheritance, everything that they they thought – that word literally means inheritance. And so what God is saying is the the earth has kind of, of played its course. There's there's Everything has kind of been run into desolation. Everything's empty. Mm-hmm. And now he's going to restore it. So uh, the way that I think of this, like the first thing that jumps into my head goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, when when Adam and Eve were created, they were given, you know, an abundance, plentiful, total freedom, nakedness, joy, all this stuff. And and they had all of this. They had one restriction and then they spat in God's face. And from that day forward, as you read through the Old Testament, mankind was absolutely incapable of holding on to any inheritance of for themselves. You know, they would be, they would be given this marvelous kingdom. And what do they do? They squander it. All these families, all the tribes, they eventually go apostate and they're conquered. Even Jerusalem itself, the city where God dwells, like they can't hold on to it. Their, their, their sin and their selfishness and their injustice and the, their, the way that they treat one another. You know, ultimately they squander everything. But here, notice it's God says, I'm going to give you, Jesus, as a covenant to the people. You're not just going to bring a covenant and say, okay, here's the terms of our new deal. Like, you're the fulfillment of it. You are the covenant to the people, and you're coming to restore the earth to what it was originally designed to be, and you're going to cause them, the ones who squander Every bit of their inheritance, every time I try to give them, look at our own country, right? This incredible inheritance, and they will squander. Everything they touch, they tend to squander, but I'm going to cause them to inherit 
desolate, what was left behind, the desolate inheritance, I am going to resurrect and make new again is the way that I read that. Mm. And when I look at the first part of verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Is this a, um, is this a reference to the resurrection? I think so. Okay. Um, you know, when, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus absolutely treats release from prison. He equates that with resurrection. Um, and so it's, it's go forth. Those of you that are, that are in the darkness, show yourselves. A new light has come. Um, things are being redeemed. Mm-hmm. So, and that, so I mentioned verse nine that you may say to the prisoners, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. And it continues, they shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat or sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and those from the land of Sinim. I always think it's interesting when it does this. Uh, you know, we're speaking in very broad language, like those from the north and from the west, those from afar. Oh, and also you guys over there in Sinim. <laughs> it suddenly gets very specific. What was Sin- Where was Sinim? So you'll notice that it says, you know, those from the north and the west, and then it points out the land of Sinim. And so there's the two main ideas, the two chief – No, we don't know for sure where this is. It's either down in the Sinai Peninsula area closer to Egypt, which uh-huh. would be the south, right? right? It's already listed the north and the west, so this would be the south. And some people think that this would have been the ancient Hebrew word uh, that, that – means China, which would be the far, far east. Okay. And no matter what, it's saying people are coming from all directions. All the earth is now coming. And the rest of this, when it talks about, you know, that he'll establish springs and pastures on the desolate heights and he's going to make the mountains, which are usually, you know, barriers to travel. He's making them a road and hit the highways are going to be elevated to where nothing is going to inhibit you from coming. And the idea is when the gospel comes, and you think, well, you know, he hasn't done that. When the gospel comes, what is there that keeps you from receiving it? Nothing. Uh, yeah. Right? I, I mean, our, just our own pride. Pride, yeah. Stubbornness. But he has removed every barrier that keeps you from coming to him. Your sin has been washed away. Everything. He has taken care of it. And there's a famous old line that says, um, all you need to find salvation is need. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And you have to recognize that you need it. But if you want him, if you want to grab hold of Jesus, the only thing you need is need. Just embrace him by faith and all of the barriers he has eliminated. He's absolutely eliminated them. You know, and to somebody that was living in the ancient times, especially in that part of the world, their most immediate needs would have been food and water and shelter from the unmerciful heat, <laughs> you know, because that's a part of the world where it gets very hot and it's desert area gets baked. Um, and I just kind of think that it's interesting that that's the language that is used here, that the message God is saying is that the things that you need, your immediate needs will be met by me. 
you know, mm-hmm. by this, by this one who leads you. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. He will guide them to these springs of water. And does that mean that, that he's actually going to lead them by real springs of water? I think it's more like what's taught when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well and he said, Hey, I, if you if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink, and I'd give you the water that you'll never be thirsty again. Mm-hmm. So that metaphor of water for life in that case that mm-hmm. um, I you know I think that's it's it's poetry again. I it mean is poetry. I, I, this makes it makes me think of Psalm twenty three. Yeah, you know, that he he makes his his flock lie down in green pastures. Well, we're not really. <laughs> you know, I'm like he's not. I don't go to church and then be like, all right, I got to go lay on some green pastures now. Like that's not what he's saying. It's it's that he leads us in a place of fruitfulness. He leads us beside the, the still waters. Mm-hmm. You know, he's. It shows his character that he really does tend to his flock, and he gives them um, the best treatment, and even even through hard seasons. So, like, you know, this is coming, and you have to read it as poetry. You know, he's not literally going to make all of the mountains into a road. <laughs> you know, that would be absurd. Right. What it's saying is there's no there's there's nothing that's going to be an obstruction that's going to keep you from him. Yeah. And once again in verse 13 the response of his creation is sing O heavens be joyful O earth and break out in singing O mountains for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Um this the idea of responding in song uh and and being joyful you know, I really look forward to what that day will be like. Mm-hmm. I look at a, a world that is that's basically breaking down <laughs> everywhere around me. It's like we're we're all circling the drain together, and I just think about this idea of a world that is renewed. That's that that's not going to happen anymore. That it's going to be perfect eternally. Um, I mean, that's really God rewriting the laws of physics, basically. Uh, and yeah, that would make me sing. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, so you look back at this chapter, and, and what does it said? It said that you know God is going to send this great servant. the The fact that He takes the identity of the servant is, you know, encouraging in and of itself. That He's humble; He's not afraid to serve. And you know, is it too little of a job for Him to rescue the world? Like, no, <laughs> He He comes with unbelievable power and might. And even when it seems like humanity's not coming to him, when it seems like his work is in vain, God is going to give him a great reward. And what is that reward? He's mm-hmm. one, it's the resurrection. And through the power of the resurrection, he is coming to restore the, the inheritance that was left to us desolate. He's going to restore the design that has been given to us. He's going to, to come and he's going to eliminate every obstacle that keeps us from that inheritance, that keeps it from him. Like, and so no matter what is coming around you, that's the idea of what this servant song is getting at. And what's the response to that? Like, even, even when everything seems like it's going around the drain? Sing. Like, do you realize what's coming? Do you realize what's been secured by him? Not you, by him. Be joyful, O earth. And it, so it gives this command to singing. And then I love the honesty of the scriptures, right? Because here you have God who's saying, okay, here's my servant song. This is really amazing. And what is the response of the people of God? It's verse 14. Yeah. 
Yeah, verse 14 through 16. And this is, uh, I guess this is sort of outside of what would be considered the servant song. This is a yeah. little bit past that. But but you're right. This is exactly the response of the people of God, verse 14. But Zion, that's the city of Zion, Jerusalem, the people of God, mm-hmm. said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. That's exactly where we want to go. Because it's like we hear the promises of God. We hear everything that he is doing and will do for us. And we look at our circumstances, and if you're like me, you'd, or you, me, know, you immediately yes. go, like, God, what are you doing? Like, this is no good. This isn't what I signed up for. I want you to perform better. You know, mm-hmm. you've forsaken me. You've forgotten about me. And and that's what humanity does. Like, when things don't go our way, we point a finger at God, even though he has done so much for us. Sure. And I love the answer of verse 15. Yeah, here's God's answer. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is such a beautiful picture. You know, here you have Israel saying, you've forgotten me, you've forsaken me. And God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And I want you to stop there because God, one, in a sense, is comparing himself to having motherly qualities here. Sure. He's he's like a mother with a nursing child. And the reality is in that relationship, the relationship between God and his people, it's, it's a pretty perfect illustration because what do we do? <laughs> We're these little tyrant babies mm-hmm. that just scream and demand that he come and feed us more and more and more. And the relationship between a nursing mother and a child is not a two-way street. All no. the child does is scream and demand and cry and, you know, rah, rah, rah. and you have a mother who doesn't say, that's it, I've had it, uh, you know. <laughs> and no. I'm never I'm not going to feed you anymore. You know, the the woman comes and one she can't forget because if, you know, we've got four kids and when when Laura was nursing, if it had gone too long and you know the baby was sleeping too long, she would get uncomfortable from the milk that was coming and you can't you literally can't forget. It will make mm-hmm. you uncomfortable. And so she would grab, you know, the child and she would begin to nurse and there's something in women like hormonal that comes out when you're breastfeeding that literally makes you love your child even more. It's part of God's design, which is pretty amazing. And they just sit and dote. And I can remember coming out at like three o'clock in the morning when Laura would be nursing and she would be sleeping and, you know, had run out and the, and the child would still be nursing. And what God is saying is you're like the nursing child. You, you cry. You don't understand things. You're, you're desperate. To be filled, do you think I'm going to leave you? Right. Like, no, no more than a mom. In fact, he says they will forget. A mom will will forget. They'll they'll get lost. They'll fall asleep. They'll do whatever. But I'm even closer to you than that, which is mind boggling. That that's the way that God sees us with that yeah. kind of tenderness. But then my favorite, he says, "See, I can't forget you. I have inscribed you." On the palms of my hands, which, you know, for, for those of us who live on the other side of the cross, that's amazing. You know, he's the Lord. When we see him in glory, has got a constant reminder of what he has purchased, who he has purchased. The holes on his palms came with him on the other side of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And what's really fascinating about this, if you think, okay, well, I get what has been engraved in the palm of his hands, Right. 
But for those who were reading Isaiah's scrolls 700 years before Jesus, what would this have meant? And it's even, I think, more profound because in the ancient world, in the slave trade, this awful slave trade, in other nations, when you were sold to a master as a servant, remember this is right after the servant song, which is talking about slaves. He's a slave. When you were sold to a master, they would tattoo on either your forehead or on the palms of your hands the name of your master. You were branded. Mm -hmm. And think about this. Here you have God, the ultimate master, the one who is absolutely entitled to all of your obedience and all of your time and all of your resources, whom has absolute right to call you his servant, is looking at you saying, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. I, the master, am becoming the servant, and I so bound myself to serve you that I put your name on the palms of my hands. That is amazing. I mean, it is absolutely stunning just how much the Lord loves us. Mm -hmm. Here you have the master of the universe, the creator of the universe, who's saying, I'm going to take a mark on my palms that identify me as a servant, as a mm -hmm. slave. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to Philippians 2 in the New Testament and Paul is talking about the servant, this is what he says, that Jesus, who is in very nature, he's God, like he is, he has all the claims of God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he's not up there going, I'm God and therefore I demand this and this and this, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of of a servant being made in human likeness. And then it says that he humbled himself to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And why does he do that? Like what motivation could the God of the universe have for reducing and humbling himself into the role of a servant? There's only one, and that's love. And so here you see God promising to, to send his son as a servant into the world to redeem you, to redeem the world. And there's only one motive that comes from that, and that is love. And so when you think, you know, here's the Lord who is saying, you're like a, a nursing baby to me. I'm like a mother. I will, I'll become a servant. There's nothing that I would not do to eliminate any obstacle from you being with me forever. That's the measure of my love. When you think about the incredible humility of God and the lengths that he would go to win you, that's when you have to, you, you got to remember that so that you're not tempted to say in the middle of my circumstance, does God still love me? Oh my goodness, what more could he possibly do to show you how much he loves you? Mm -hmm. And when you realize that, then you walk forth in confidence knowing that you're secure no matter what circumstances are going on, but it also inspires you with that security to humble yourself to reduce yourself to love others and to lift others up. It's 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 the most beautiful ethic imaginable, mm. um, and it's the ethic of our God. Well, that is a good word, uh, and it's one that we're going to end on. Uh, folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us this week in this study of the Servant Songs in Isaiah. If you'd like to correspond with us, you can do so. Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all of the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash 
Out of Water. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and also in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available both for iOS and Android devices. Sam and I will be back next week with another from our series in the book of Isaiah, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.